Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Ian. And welcome to No Mean City, the Taggart podcast that we have managed to get to episode three of, which I'm proud of in itself. <laughs> Defying all the odds, I think, at the moment. Defying our own <laughs> expectations is really what I think we've done. <laughs> On today's show, we have reviews of the first series proper of Taggart, that's Dead Ringer and Murder in Season, plus an exclusive chat with the man behind the music from the show, Mike Moran. What's been lovely is, I've got to say, the response has been so nice from everyone who's listened, but also I've had messages from people saying, oh, I've started watching it again, which was exactly why we were doing this. So where do we begin talking about what is Series 1 proper, which took almost two years. By the time we get to these two stories, it's... I mean, Killer was 83, September 83, I think it was. This is kind of the middle of 85. I Probably just the nature of television in the 80s as well it wasn't quite the kind of you know we talked about last time when we spoke to glenn about kind of mm. the difference in production to what things are now it's less of a conveyor belt back then you know that you know as we go along we, we look at things like recording dates and so on on this there is weird structures and like they'll record a whole block and it'll be spread out over the course of like 18 months before you see the episodes it's not unless you were a soap shows didn't just kind of or a sitcom they didn't just kind of drop in every year without fail there was a lot more Kind of people were busy, they were off doing theatre, they were off doing film. Television wasn't always the priority, sadly, for a lot of actors. So, yeah, it made a big gap. But also, I think a lot of it will just be what ITV had in the schedule. You know, this came in the summer, which usually for television is kind of a dead time. But ITV gave us a huge build-up. They, they, you know, they, they really entrusted STV to do it. They put it in in a uh, what would normally in the summer, sort of middle of the summer and schedule would be kind of chucking something away. But it got a lot of hype. Uh, around it and obviously the viewing figures are really high as well on the back of it so it ends up you know launching this this regularity where Taggart becomes kind of a really big thing for them. But what's incredible to me is that time period did people really remember it because what we're about to see is essentially a spot-on continuation from Killer. I mean it doesn't pick up exactly where it leaves off it picks up almost I think it is meant to be 18 months later. There's so there's so much has happened uh, or things have happened that uh, they refer to. Um, is it, do you think people did really remember? I mean, especially the relationship between the two main characters. It's, it is kind of odd that there is that kind of two-year gap in terms of momentum. But I think, you know, as we, we talked about on, when we did the, the pilot, there wasn't a huge amount of kind of other shows doing that. So, you know, and particularly for, you know, output from STV that was going networked at the time, there wasn't a huge amount. So the kind of flag-bearing nature of Tiger, I think, probably helped it a bit as well. And, and again, because it's that summer thing, there's, you know, people... There's a kind of myth people don't watch TV during the summer, they're out and about. But actually, people will watch good stuff in the summer because there's not a lot of other things on at night. It's usually repeat. So I think that probably helped it as well. Well, let's talk about the first story of uh, the two stories in series one. So that's Dead Ringer, which is once again directed by Lawrence Moody, who directed Killer, and once again written by Glenn Chandler. And it ran over three episodes from 2nd of July through to the 16th of July in uh, 1985. We see the return of Mark McManus as DCI Jim Taggart, who is once again partnered with Alistair Duncan, who plays DS Peter Livingston. Tom Watson returns as Superintendent Murray, which is interesting when we see what happens in the series. We'll talk about that. Uh, You've also got Colette O'Neill as Josephine Peebles. 
John Carling is George Cunningham, JG Devlin is Bill Lynch, Jake Darcy is Ronnie McIsaac, John McGlynn is Mike Balfour. I remember John McGlynn being in everything in the 80s. We'll probably talk about him at some point. Alexander Morton is David Balfour and the amazing I love Maureen Beatty in everything she's in. Maureen Beatty is June Balfour. Um, I'll quickly go over the synopsis, uh, very short synopsis. We have agreed, haven't we, Ian, that we are going to do spoilers? Yes, we asked, well, we asked our listeners on Twitter if they were happy with spoilers and everyone said yes. So, sorry, if you if you haven't watched this episode yet, pause now, go and watch it on STV Player or, or on... Uh, uh, UK TV play and then come back to us. If you haven't watched any of this and you're listening to us, something's very wrong in your life. Get, watch Tagger. Don't listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> it's really strange if you're doing that. So here's a synopsis for Dead Ringer. The skeletal remains of a dismembered body are discovered beneath the floorboards of a house in Glasgow, but DCI Tagger and D.S. Livingston find themselves sidetracked when the case takes an unexpected twist. A nine-month-old Toddler is kidnapped from a multi-storey car park by an unknown assailant, followed by a ransom demand of £50,000. So, Ian, what did you make of this? Because I really need to talk this one through. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really fascinating show episode to watch in the context of the rest of the series because it's so atypical, a mm. Tiger story. Mm-hmm. There's no murder in it. Well, no actual murder within the story. There is there is someone who, who is murdered that's the, prior to all this. It's the lead up to this. It's a historic killing. But it's it's a very kind of twisty, turny story. It's about kind of family dynamics. It's about the media as well, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And actually, you missed them off your credit list, but a, a huge shout out to Ron Bain, um, legendary Scottish comedy actor and director, who plays uh, the the journalist Laurie Johnson in this? From I think it's supposed to be from the Herald, the Tribune. It's the Tribune. Is it the Tribune? That's it. Yes. Which, to be fair, I mean, there's so many Glasgow papers from that era that have shot now. It may well actually be a real paper. Uh, <laughs> its offices have probably been turned into a pub by now. So, so t- tell me a bit about him. I don't know who that is. He was one of the founders of Naked Radio. Um, went on to be part of Naked Video as well. Ah. He, he, you will see him in loads. He was in the XYY Man. He was in just like any a kick up the eighties, any kind of eighties uh, comedy stuff that came out of Scotland. He was involved. Also, a director directed City Lights. Um, he was uh, directed all the the um, I Am Jolly specials with Ricky Fulton, who was a good friend of his as well. And it's gone on to do like loads of TV, just like proper directing TV. One of like as soon as he appears on the screen, I was like, oh my god, it's Ron Bain. I didn't know who was in this. Um, and it's such an incongruous... Because this one has got an amazing cast, as you said, of people you recognise. Like Alex Morton obviously went on to be in Monica the Glen, was golly in that. John McGlynn, as you said, was in everything. Uh, and obviously now manages Wraith Rovers. Um, but he was probably most famous at that point for All Creatures Great and Small. Did he, he must have done that after this. He must have gone into that after Peter Davidson left. Or it must have been not long after. Right. Um, and as you say, Maureen Beatty, who's been in everything. Yeah. I mean, wh- where we start, though, like you say, it's interesting that it's basically a, a solid continuation of the cast all coming back. They do bring everyone back that was that was key in Killer in terms of the police. It starts off with the finding of packages under the floorboards of a house that's being demolished. And then 
And there's so many jokes around these packages that you can tell that the humour of Taggart comes through really well in the writing and how grim these jokes are because there's so many jokes about it being Christmas presents and Santa bringing these. And it's it's just, they don't hold back at actually having a laugh, even though these grim bones have been discovered. It's pretty black humour quite straight off the bat. It's it's, it's, really, I think it it sets an amazing tone, but I think that is that scene really does just set set up the series for me. I think that is the tone that continues to run and run. And it's interesting as well. It's it's, it's a, a cold open, which ah. um, obviously Killer didn't have, and and also Murder in Season. The other story this episode doesn't have a, a cold open either. But the cold open doesn't feature any of the regular cast. There's no kind of context for it. You're just you're in a house and. Somewhere in Glasgow where they're finding body parts. In retrospect, how wonderful that they've the cold open because once that's done, then yes. we go into that theme tune and it's just glorious. The, the theme tune for Tiger, you know, it, it, it lasts mm. until the final episode in various remixes and so on. But those opening titles with the kind of the, the, the shot of uh, Glasgow from the, I think it's from the campsies. And, you know, you've got those, that, that mm-hmm. line drawing of Mark McManus and you've got the, the kind of, views of Glasgow appearing with the, the the sort of overlaid onto the city. It's it's it is as as iconic for me as the music as well. When when watching it, I, I'd actually forgotten that that it was coming. And the moment it started, I was just so happy. So happy. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure it's a show that's meant to make you feel happy, but that that's a that was a rare moment where I just thought, yes, this is this is what we came for. And it's interesting you say about that continuation. It's absolutely true because when we get the the show opening properly, you get Peter and Jim meeting at the crime scene, and it's as you say, it's kind of set up. This is the, the there's been a gap since Killer, and they've not interacted since then. It's all set up in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. This, you know, what Peter says at one point. Last time I saw you, I thought you were a bastard, and that was a long time ago. There is supposed to be this animosity between them on the back of everything that happened in Killer, and you know there is a long period of time that they've, they've not presumably been allowed to be in the same room because Murray does say we're putting you back mm. together for this, and that kind of edge is there at the start. What well, What's odd about that though is, despite the time that has gone past, they don't really give you any insight as to what's happened in in the interim. So it's almost like. Why? Why did they do that? Because they could have just had them still as a partnership. I think it's a, it's, it's a nice kind of reset. I suppose, as you said, some people are coming to this sort of two years after Killer, so it, you know it, it gives you that kind of breathing room where you can change it. Because the one thing, and we talked a lot, obviously, in Killer, and we talked with, with with Glenn about it, is that Jim's character is is slightly different in Killer to how he is in the series, mm. and it gives you that kind of the two years allows effectively for a, a, an actual reset of him. Um, everyone else, notably, is exactly the same as they were, and, and you know, and uh, Doctor Andrews, Robbie Robertson, is there, you know, being his usual self straight off the bat as well, which is wonderful and a, a lovely running thing that appears over like all six episodes from the series, which is his increasingly pissed offness with Peter and his forensic knowledge, where he's like he's just getting increasingly annoyed at this young upstart coming along who seems to think he knows all about pathology, <laughs> and it's like, no, that's my job. Stop it, yeah. And we kind of, I think we're kind of on his side whenever, <laughs> whenever he does get a bit irascible about it because Peter is just showing off. He is quite annoying at times. And, I, and part of that, obviously, is the character clash. But there is a couple of moments when, more in Murder in Season than this one, but there's a couple of moments where you're kind of like, I'm on Jim's side with this. He's, he is 
a little bit cocky. But then, you know, part of that, again, is two years where he's clearly been kind of a high flyer elsewhere in the force and working on other things before he comes back to this. And the other thing which is really nice about it is it's it's one of, even though it's the first episode, effectively, of Taggart, is that it's about Jim's past in a way that we don't do really with other stories. You know, this is about a case that he had worked on where uh, Alex, Alex Morton's character, David, has been sent to prison, which it turns out for a crime that he didn't commit, and he's been released after new evidence and the papers are crucifying Jim for it and, and his involvement in the case and it's a you know there's a bit of doubt from him did he get the wrong thing which is very quickly dispelled when he just becomes his usual belligerent self but um, it's again it's a kind of slight unpeeling of the layers of Taggart that we don't actually get much more of later on in the show about his kind of previous life as a policeman and I, th- I think Mark McManus handles it brilliantly. Mm. Um, sets up the character very well, for, especially for those who maybe didn't see Killer. But I think the way that he does handle how slowly he starts to to doubt his own convictions um, and then figures out, actually, this is all a bluff in the end. Uh, I think I think Mark McManus is brilliant as Jim Taggart in yeah. this. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's, you can see why the public bought into him as a character, even, you know, after all the changes and everything goes on. And he, he just absolutely inhabits the series. Um, and it works so well because of that, you know. In, in a way, Killer's kind of, like I said, it's slightly different, and it's, there's more of a kind of partnership there with Peter. And this is very much, it's Jim's show in this one. He's running the show. So even though they, um, the the circumstances kind of change, where he's, he's involved in a, a kidnapping case, which is not something that Mary LCID, one would imagine, are, are often involved in. And also geographically a very odd situation because this is a supposedly Mary Hill CID that are investigating this, but this all seems to take place out in the sticks. It's all like out in the coast somewhere. So I've never quite worked out. This is the one thing that kind of throws me with this. Is, it's like, where does this all set? Is that not an issue that just will be, will run and run throughout the rest of the, the, the history of the show though? Because uh, they're meant to be just part of Glasgow, but somehow they end up seem to, they seem to be the only police force in Scotland at some point, I think. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to be everywhere. The next one has the same where it's Milgai. Um, quite a lot of it's set in, which I'm, I'm pretty sure is not Mary Hill's jurisdiction, but you know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Strathy police had their own boundaries that were a little bit looser. It makes for some lovely shots, and there's some beautiful sort of ex- make use of, of like the beaches with them driving along, and some fantastic tracking shots out there that, that are so far away removed from the kind of the the industrial post-industrial bits of Glasgow we see down by the Clyde, or the kind of the buildings that are being renovated, and the kind of the the, the halfway house that's being run for prisoners that features into the story as well. The, the former landlady of that owns the building where the body is discovered in the, the basement and it's kind of, where does all this fit in? But it's it's a nice contrast. We've had the kind of industrial bit of Glasgow. We've had the domestic bit of Glasgow. Now we see this beautiful bit of coastline, which isn't Glasgow, but is really pretty and, and is filmed by Lawrence Moody in a really nice way as well. Is that where the mother's house was then? I could not figure out where where her house was meant to be at all. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure about that either. It's kind of, they talk a lot about... Um, uh, Ayrshire on the in the thing because the, the original the murder uh, in inverted commas is supposed to happen on the road to Beath, um, which w- they're right as well in the show. It is the A seven three seven because it's down by my grand's. Presume it's meant to be out sort of going down sort of past 
sort of co-winning and going out towards the seaside. But it's it is a kind of weird. I don't know. Maybe she's out Irving way or something. It's kind of it. it this never kind of it just seems to be sort of generic outside Glasgow coastline she lives in. Because that confused me a little bit. Looking at the house, I was like, oh, that's... I mean, even the, the mother is also quite middle-class. The house is very nice. But this was all done as an insurance scam to raise money. It didn't look to me like they were. The, she was from a, a poor background. So I, 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 I was a little bit unsure about, in the end, the, the motive for everything that happened felt like a lot of work for very little. Or yes. maybe they, I just didn't feel like she needed the money. That's that's the the big twist with this uh, for folk who are watching the, the kind of the big red herring is that um, Maureen Beatty's character is the person who was supposedly murdered and has been living a lie for twenty years or whatever it is, or fifteen years. It's it's a really clever twist. I have to admit, when I was watching, I was kind of wait, wait, what? As this sort of yeah. as it kind of gets revealed, but it it doesn't necessarily make sense when you look at the whole plot of what they're trying why he's blackmailing them and well and i was gonna argue this but i think i'm gonna say the same for the next episode as well i don't think it's a whodunit because i don't think you can figure that out i there's one slip up from maureen Beatty's character maybe halfway through where she says maybe she should speak to to david herself and then mm. she's asked do you know her and do you know him and she says no that is literally the only slight clue and you wouldn't pick up on that because the actress delivers so well that you actually don't realise it is a mistake that she makes. So I don't think you would. This is a who done it at all. Because there's the red herring kicking about of the halfway house, and yeah. who, you know, who who who's who's at the halfway house? There's a whole sort of bunch of colourful characters living there, and they're they're kind of their life. And there's a a former mental patient who's involved. Um, yeah, and there's a question of whether he did it and doesn't remember, and it's kind of. Lots of kind of lots of little bits of business going on around the kind of periphery, but the actual central plot is this kind of very odd, convoluted. They killed somebody and covered it up to get the insurance, and and then had to live out a lie for a decade. And and there's a yeah. you know they've had a kid, and it's kind of I I think the the, the idea is it's meant to be a bit of a revenge thing for him going off with the sister, but or going off with the the, the ex wife. But it's it's just it's so weird a plot yeah this is really easier i mean he gets this is the thing if it's about the money right the the insurance money he gets um 20 grand for selling his story to the tribune or the paper which in modern money is 65 i think 65 grand roughly i worked out kind of before this with the current exchange rate god knows the interest rates it could be about a billion quid frankly at the moment I mean, I I love the idea. There's a Scottish newspaper now that could afford sixty five thousand pounds to pay for a story. Yeah, they spell it out in a bit of an argument in episode three, I think it is, just to underline that. Remember this part of the story. But uh, he's he's got eighty thousand pounds compensation. He's got the insurance money, which he claims from the uh, from claiming his wife's death, and then he gets sells his story as well. So in total, six figures, uh, whatever that would come to now. But then if we actually spell out what they did, so he's gone to jail for the alleged murder of his wife, who turns out is not dead, and it's uh, the crime that he, his brother, and she have committed to, to start a business they wanted. Yeah. I, I, and then what was going to happen, I think, was that eventually they would prove or find. No, I I couldn't even explain what the it, initial idea was. It, it's but, it's a bit convoluted. 
even by Tiger Sun. I mean, this is the interesting thing is, like you said, it's such an atypical story that it's it doesn't kind of fit into the any of the more neater boxes of this is a murder and here's yeah. who did it and the right time. And you said it's really hard to kind of there's not a natural who done element to it because it, it, there isn't. No. A, they they all did it and and they covered it up. Uh, but it does it does it is carried along I think by the performances and and the quality of the writing. Yeah. I mean, the writing there's some some phenomenal dialogue. Oh, just kind of sparkles yeah. along in the dialogue. Have either of you ever been to Ethiopia? Is that near eyebrows? A lot of witchcraft and sorcery still exists out there, you know. Yeah, sounds like eyebrows. I love that guy. It's just like the, the, the little sort of beats, and they said earlier, the dark humour, that Glasgow humour just keeps filtering through all the time. Yeah, and I just... I, I keep thinking so I, I do think when when thinking about this show needing to look at it as three episodes rather than one and I tried to watch this one in three episodes and I I just thought, well, okay, you're not gonna remember a lot of this. So I think you probably probably audiences loved back in the day that it was such a convoluted outcome because you probably wouldn't remember a lot of what came from episode one anyway. It is entirely down to brilliant writing and the performances that make it fly. Yeah. I, I just wonder, probably you were watching it for that that U-turn at the end, but were you really thinking, oh, I, I, I got that in the end? Maybe some people would claim it, but I don't know. Maybe that's not what t- watching Taggart was all about. I don't know. It's one of the, I think, actually, you're right. Because I watched it in one block, and I think it probably does benefit maybe from watching it in phases as it was intended, where you've got that time to kind of breathe and let it kind of sink in and then pick up from the next one. It does have some phenomenal kind of cliffhangers and, and episode breaks, though. The, the, particularly the one in, in the uh, Kelvin, uh, Kelvin Bridge when the, 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 the money's on top of the fountain. And all comes down with the yeah. kids steal the briefcase. That whole bit where he's going a wire and he gives Jim and Peter the slip and you know running through the park is it is a really tense bit of especially you know there's the exchange of briefcases because he's, he's leaving the money for this blackmailer um, and there's kind of the kids find it. It's really really tense. Just it just it feels like a real iconic proper iconic Taggart moment straight off the bat. But what clues were there? I just. Even watching it, remembering slightly, I, I kind of remembered what what the end was. So I was watching it for clues. I I can't really think of many. But it's, it's a difficult one to, to judge because it's such a really different story. And I I, after that, I really enjoyed it. Okay. It's a brilliant, brilliant story. It does kind of sweep you along. But it's one of those where you sit, sit back at the end and kind of go, wait, what? <laughs> um, the one big unanswered question for the whole thing for me, though, is... What in hell was Maureen Beatty's character going to try and do getting all that shopping in the back of her car? Because she's got a full trolley full of unbagged shopping so she's trying to get in the back of a Mini. And there's, there's no way it's all going to fit. Plus, also, it's not in bags, so she's individually... Was, was she planning just to tip the trolley up and just dr- dump all the shopping into the back of the car? Maybe she was going to take the baby out, leave the baby, and put the groceries in instead. Maybe she always, the plan wasn't to go back with the baby at all. <laughs> or maybe that was a clue. Maybe she... No, no, no. I'm, think, I'm overthinking it. That's a great point. When, I, when that happened, though, I mean, you can tell how expensive things have got. I just thought, what a waste of groceries. How expensive yes. is that? <laughs> it's another clue that they didn't need the money. <laughs> um, 
So uh, another point that I want to talk about, which I I I will need to find somebody who can explain to us. So I was so surprised to see Tom Watson coming back. I thought he only did kill her. So when he turns up in the first scene, I was like, "Whoa, the mint is still in this." Well, uh, but he's not in the the next story. So I, I I wonder why Tom Watson came back for this. He apparently had a, a double booking. Right. So he was available for the first three episodes and wasn't for the second three. So they just wrote him out. But there's when we get there's no kind of farewell. He's just he's literally he's the boss. He's the super in, in the first story, and he's gone. And McVitie's the new super. And the, the only thing they say is, "Oh, the new super's here." Yeah. And that's it. There's no kind of oh yeah, Murray's retired or he's he's got been transferred. He's just he's just gone. I told Watson had had a, a, another gig, and again, you know, we talked last episode. He's a very busy actor, very popular actor. So I think it was I think it was a theatre gig, but it was just kind of like. He didn't want to, to to carry on. I wonder if he kind of looked at it the first thing and thought, "Well, you know, it's 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 it's, it's really one more series. I'm not sure I'll stick around. You know, I don't want to give up another acting job for this if it's going to be finished in a at the end of this six episodes." Of course, had he stuck on, you know, twenty years later, he'd still been in it. So there, it's it, in in retrospect, maybe not the right move, but yeah, it's it's kind of very odd that there's this kind of he's gone and he gets to see him and. Jim and Peter out at the, the riverside and looking for the, the case with the body, which is, a, again, that brilliant scene with the, the Buddha. Jim chucks his Buddha in the, the river and then there's these poor divers going to look for it. Well, thank you. What the hell did you do that for? Sir, there's a truck down here. Well, get it up here. And while you're about it, it's a green ornamental Buddha about that size. Thinking how Killer ended, and the fact that uh, the super actually had a kind of involvement with the, the actual uh, mm. culprit, I thought, well, okay, maybe that's why he doesn't return. So that's why I was surprised to see him. They clearly didn't expect him not not to return after that, surely. Yeah, I must. There must have been a, a you know, they, they booked him in good faith for three episodes. They presumably thought he was going to be out for six, and then um, he, he isn't. It's a shame. But on the bright side, we do get we get Ian Anders in the next story. You know, the starter of McVitie, who's who's a brilliant character in himself. So you know, it's it's a shame because Watson is a really a, a, Robert Murray is a really interesting character as well, and there's a different dynamic because he's very old school. He's like Jimmy came up through the ranks, whereas McVitie is a kind of golf club mason. Um, particularly Honshake type of, of senior policeman. And it's, it's very different, I think, in terms of personality-wise. And also, notably, what I think was really interesting is the height dynamic. It's like, you know, Anders is huge. He's a big guy. And and Tom Watson wasn't. And him and Jim together, they just look like, you know, two old boys from the force. And Ian Anders just kind of towers over him when they've got scenes together. So uh, how many murders were there actually then? Let, let's figure this out. Was there was there one? Do we count that as one? There was one. So, the, so there is a murder that happens before the episode takes place, right? Um, and you could argue there's an attempted murder when when um, uh, John McGlynn's character is chasing mm. David along the beach and is trying to kill him on the beach. Um, which also, without but I'd love to know if it's scripted or not. It's something I'm going to ask Glenn at some point. Oh, um, when he when he jumps the fence, uh, Alex Morton jumps the fence. And Miss times it and just goes flat on his face. Oh, I couldn't work out if that was there for him to like to add some tension that he's going to get caught with, or if he properly stacked it. I, I think so. I don't. I, it does not look like he's planned to do that at all. But if he hasn't planned it, he he pulls it off brilliantly. Totally, yeah. I, I'm sold. It looked bloody sore. I, I've got to say, I would, I would, I would have taken uh, Alexander Morton to win that fight. I think he looks like he could take John McGlynn. 
He's had seven years in prison. You think in the bar L as well. Yeah. You think it'd be quite tasty. Yeah. But then you know, John McGlynn's character is a, a motor mechanic, Glasgow. You know, uh, could go either way that fight. <laughs> and another thing I want to point out: uh, when you get to the resolution and they show you uh, what June Balfour looked like when she apparently died, that's a different actress. Okay, they can say she's changed a lot. They have cheated with that picture. And had they, sh- I don't know if they showed you that picture before. If they've showed you it before, they've cheated. I'm not giving them it. It dwells on her for a f- for a few seconds at the very end. Looks nothing like her. Nothing like her at all. <laughs> so overall, did you enjoy the episode, Steve? I thought it was superb entertainment. Uh, as someone who loves a murder mystery and trying to guess who it is, didn't didn't enjoy that aspect. Knowing at the end that I just probably couldn't have guessed it, but as a show, I I just think it's a very solid start to Tiger, and it was just fun to see it again. Uh, it's only been a couple of years since I watched it last. Definitely a, a very good start to the series. What about yourself? Yeah, likewise. It's such an atypical episode. It doesn't. But at the same time, it really kind of everything is there that makes Taggart. You've got the red herrings. You've got the 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 the, the comedy twist payoff with the the couple who you think might be the murderers and actually just at it in a tower. What was that? Where's the baby? Well, give me a chance to get my trousers off. Whoa, whoa! What's this? <laughs> wow. And that's the kind of stuff that Tiger does so well. Yeah, I've got to say, not the most romantic yeah, rendezvous. I, I don't know if that relationship was made to last. We have once again another special interview. Can you give us a bit of an introduction to that? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I caught up with Mike Moran, the musician behind the incredible theme tune to Tiger and the show's incidental music for years. And we talked about how the iconic Taggart theme came together, how they created music for the episodes, what the process was. But we started by looking at the theme tune to Killer and why it had such a different sound to the rest of the show. The reason for that was the... the um, it, it was kind of a... The Killer in that was a kind of a sort of fopper. So we decided that, you know, a string quartet might suit it. It was way before the, the kind of idea of, of um, you know, Taggart and the song... Mm. Um, was, was was actually kind of formulated or, or, or finessed, if you like. So there was no real brief for the music. It just went, when we spoke, when I spoke about the production team, they said, well, it's kind of nice, it's a little bit different, and we don't really know what kind of music to put to it. So it was it was a, a different style. It really was based upon the upon the lead character in that, who was, who was um, slightly sort of timeless, if you like. Um, so we, we just picked a timeless, uh, a timeless way of doing it, which is with, with a few strings. The budget wasn't the budget wasn't absolutely magnificently generous in those days. But that apart, it you know it kind of made a point and, and um, gave an impetus to um, the, the series actually being commissioned as a series. It was only you know when Robert Love got got back to me said, "Look, we're making a series," and we and he said, uh, the, "The thing about it is, <laughs> if we're doing this, we'd like to have some kind of signature." tune if you like and something that actually um um people see people often get the wrong impression about glasgow um in that you know you know it's, it's usually always in the headlines for the for the wrong reasons violence night crime and that kind of stuff which of course is a you know is is great for detective series he said but it's also it's a city of culture and you know great architecture and great art you know glaswegians that have accomplished great things surgeons you know designers painters you know that kind of stuff he said so there's a different side to it 
And uh, if we could find something that would work, that would say, would, would sort of give a little bit of inkling right at the outset about uh, about these two different sides of, of, of um, uh, you know, of Glasgow and the surrounding areas. So that's how No Mean City came, came about. Um, and so I had, to do, I had to sort of wrestle with these lyrics, which kind of told both sides, if you like. But, but it was always in, in the back of my mind that... Um, you know, the grim side of it, if you like, should be a, quite a, an earthy kind of background. And I just thought, well, it's got to be classic R and B. It's got to be, it's got to be a bit rocky and a bit solely. And uh, I, I, I toured America prior to that with uh, Maggie Bell, who's a very famous Glaswegian. And um, and also, I actually worked with Lulu. Funny enough, I was Lulu's MD at the time. So I thought, well, they're both from Maryhill. So you know, if I can get one of them to sing the title song, it would be great. I decided upon Maggie because she had that kind of Janis Joplin quality about her. You know, she's a, a, an amazing, amazing uh, R&B mm-hmm. singer, Maggie. I, look, I just asked her, and she said I'd be delighted to do it. And, and that that was how we got involved with that. Funnily enough, the opening title. It was just instrumental. It was only Max was only on the on the closing title. So um, that's how that all started. And the soundtrack to the, the drama, if you like, was always always based upon this kind of. It was always done live. I'd always had a live live band in the studio, and they became a real good team of people. Uh, and we had that kind of rhythm and blues, you know, sort of background, really, that earthy sound. Yeah. Um, and it really, it really, it really, well, everybody really liked it. So we were, we, we were, we were sort of quits in really for, for about 15 years, I think. <laughs> I was, I was fascinated on what the kind of process was in terms of scoring the episodes. Cause when you've got a show like that, when it is, you know, there's, there's so much of it is about atmosphere. Yeah. Were you kind of given the scripts first? Were you given the actual rushes? Was it just giving them coming to say we need a kind of a theme for this kind of variation on a theme or this kind of concept for this or how did it work? Uh, what, what, I mean, since the turnaround on these things was was quite quite quick. Although although they were, I think they were about nine week shoots. They were quite generous shoots for a, a, a TV uh, drama. Um, but um, the turnaround, from my point of view, and of course, you know, um, that was in Glasgow, and I've, I've you know I've always been. You know, since I left Leeds as a young lad, I've lived down south, in, just outside London. So um, there were uh, often I'd get um, the more the, you know the directors that were keen on having some involvement in what went on would travel down. Some of the production team would travel down, um, and we'd, we'd 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 just we'd look at the finished, we'd look at the fine cut. Really, um, there's just not no real point in trying to guess what the music's going to be like. It's got to fit to picture. It always had to be scored quite closely to picture. So we could, I could only really work from the fine cut. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I used to get scripts as well, but, um, you know, um, it was the scripts really, really just gave me a general feel for the, for the thing as a whole. It didn't really point as to where the music started or finished, if you like. Um, and it, it, it got to be, it just got to be, um, um, you know, um, I, I certain things which I used all the time, and, and, and a lot of it, you know, was um, according to what what, what, the, what the what the script dictated. You know, there were, I mean, there were various different strange people involved that were murderers. So you never knew if it was a crossbow murderer, or a poisoner, or, or, or you know, a male or female or a child. So it was it was kind of, a, but they were they were very well written. I mean, Glenn was an, an amazing writer, and and they were they really were uh, fabulous things to work with. Um, the, the, that was quite simply the process, and, and initially, you know, I, I say, look, um, I will overwrite rather than underwrite. If there's anything that's super, you just cut it out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, we would not time to go back and redo things. So, you know, you may as well have more. And, and we, had, we had kind of a, a library of ideas that, you know, that, that would turn up sort of in, in a lot of the episodes. Uh, and, um, yeah, so I, I just kind of literally used to write just about wall-to-wall music at the end. You know, there were a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more space in these some of the earlier episodes because a lot of a lot of them were dialogue driven. The other thing was um, there was a huge difference um, in the later uh, things I was involved with because um, the first ones, the interior shots were all done on video, yeah, and the exterior was all done on film. And so there was always a bit of a, you know, if you've got this sort of roaring. You know, music going on the on the exterior and some fabulous exteriors on, on location there, and then you cut to an interior which is flat and and you know and video. You know, it just it's just a bit odd to to bring that kind of sound inside a house if you see or inside the police station. So um, you have to be very careful um, how you scored it. You know, when when the, when the, when you know when when it changed to video. Um, it was it was resolved. It was I mean, it's much easier to, to, to write for really once it once it was all, all all shot on film, yeah, or high definition if you like. So um, you know, the, but it was it was a it, there was a it was a bit weird in those early. I mean, all, all TV companies used to do it because uh, you know it was the most efficient way of doing things. From your point of view, when you were putting the the, the sort of episodes together in terms of the music, because there's a really distinctive feel to the Tiger. Um, incidental mm. music all the way through, and as you said, yeah. the theme's this wonderful blues guitar feel yeah. to it, and and then there's this kind of some of them are very. I mean, again, going from killer to the main series, killer's got that, like you said, that string quartet. The, the series, it, it does feel kind of, it does feel like going into sort of like a blues bar. It's that kind of sort of dive feel to it, which is a really That's kind of right. again a very <laughs> different feel to Glasgow than than perhaps people had in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing is, you needed it. We had the we had the kind of basic rhythm section, which is just uh, you know keyboards, bass, drums, and guitar and percussion. But I also said, you know, we need uh, we need a, a front line instrument. I had this wonderful saxophone player called Andy McIntosh, um, uh, with Ken McIntosh's son, famous band leader. Uh, Andy was one of the most unbelievably talented uh, um, uh, sax players. He also played flute as well. So I had the option to kind of um, you know, change the mood, if you like, with the with, with using using Andy, um, you know, as a as a saxophonist and flute player. Um, so, yeah, and I tried, there was there were also other things that were that were quite off the wall. Some of the more bizarre ones, you know, we would go off into um, well, you know, if you like, if you like a a more a more cinematic. Um, a more cinematic underscore, but it always used to, you know, the, the, the police bits and the and the and the and the fights and the, the murders were usually that gritty, hard kind of, mm. you know, heavy metal, heavy metal, a rock, rock rhythm and blues kind of feel. You know, it's just a, it's just a little homage to the to, to the the way the title music was really, and um, and the guys that that did the, the the same guys that played on it for fifteen years, and they got so used to. To uh, the, the the way I wanted things that I mean the, the sessions were a joy really, um, and um, you know sometimes they would you know chip in with ideas and how about this okay that'll do that's fine you know so but but I always I always felt that 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 that, um, that was the more that was the more sort of the, the, the sort of bed on which everything was built if you like. Um, and it all stemmed from that original idea. Thanks again to Mike Moran. We're going to be dropping the full interview as an extra bonus pod on the feed. So keep an ear out for that sometime in the next few weeks. 
shall we move on to the next story of it, season one, Murder in Season, directed by Peter Barber Fleming, and once again written by Glenn Chandler. Guest stars Ayla Blair as Eleanor Sampson, Martin Cochran as John Sampson, Danny Hignett as Graham Sampson, Eileen Nicholas as Dorothy Milner, Ken Stott as Dr. McNaughton, Andrew Keir as Frank Mulholland, who, when I was checking out his internet movie database profile, was in movies like Cleopatra and A Night to Remember. Proper wow, what career he had. More than that, he's bloody Quatermass. He's Professor Quatermass and Quatermass in the pit. He's going to come to that. It's one of the greatest Hammer films of all time. I knew you would pick up on that one. <laughs> um, Ian McCulloch as Donald Martin. Dorothy Paul as Olive McQueen, who is just unrecognisable to me. I did not realise it was her. The legend Dorothy Paul. Well, she returns and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a lot more about her. But uh, <laughs> we also have a cameo from Jean Taggart herself, Harriet Buckin, who sports a perm that I don't think we see again either, thankfully. <laughs> I've got that literally my first note is Jean's got massive hair oh. now. Which is the first note I took in this episode. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's short for thereafter. I don't think... I, I think yeah, she's got that kind of wee sort of like short, short um, bob thing going on. But yeah, it's, it's huge in this episode. <laughs> So here's the synopsis. A famous opera singer is accused of murder when the body of her ex-husband's new girlfriend is found on the burnt-out shell of his boat. DCI Taggart, DS Livingston fall out when they come to different conclusions as to who is responsible for the murder. Livingston suspects that DCI Taggart's judgement has been clouded by Eleanor's beauty. Hmm. When I watched this a couple of years ago, I had no idea what happened I, I i've watched it all and i i get a firmer idea of it but i have to say there's a lot of questions i have about this one as well i enjoyed it but i have to say i was confused by a lot of it i loved this i genuinely this is one of my favorite stories i mean part of it is the guest cast which uh, is is this the starriest tiger yeah certainly in the first run that there is i mean you ayla blair obviously you know acting royalty andrew keir proper acting royalty mm-hmm. Dorothy Paul, Scottish legend. Ken Stott, you know, again, proper legend. Ian McCulloch, for crying out loud, from Survivors and loads and loads of terrible Italian horror films and zombie films and stuff, um, where he's just constantly, like, popping up with people who can't speak English and are redubbed. Um, but again, just a great, solid, hard-working actor. You know, Martin Cochran, who we were talking about before with, with the kind of... Uh, or they just watching him going, where do I know him from? And it's because he, he was in a Doctor episode with a moustache. And I was like, once I realised it was him, I was like, oh my God, it's him. I, I had to Google, is he Scottish or not? Uh, he's, he's from London. But I thought his accent was very good. Yeah, he's, he's that kind of posh Scottish. And there's a lot of... This is the, the interesting thing in this story, is because there's kind of almost like with Killer, you've got two aspects of Glasgow here. You've got two different bits of the class divide. And again, that's kind of reflected in the Jim and Peter relationship, because there's a lot of digs at Peter being a public school boy and being a posh Edinburgh type and being a rugby boy and stuff. And Jim, obviously, he's from the, the working class bits of Glasgow. He wanted, you know, he wanted to, dad wanted to be a tram driver and stuff like that. There is this kind of split where you've got this kind of, Isla Blair's character is an opera singer. She's, her ex-husband is money. Their family is money. They live out in, I presume it's meant to be out like past Bear's Den, like a really nice big old house and stuff like that. And at the same time, there's another storyline going on, which is set, in the Fur Hill Tavern. And for folk who are watching this, the Fur Hill Tavern was a real pub. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the sets are far better than the Fur Hill Tavern interior actually was. <laughs> it was a proper spit and sawdust pub. Uh, it's where, if you go up to 
because what's the declaration of interest? Stephen and I are both Partick Thistle fans, so we've got that bit of town quite a lot anyway. Proper Partick Thistle fans as well, not pretend back to spot the old firm. We've suffered for our art here. <laughs> um, and the Firhill Tavern is that bit as you go up past Star and Garter and the road up towards Firhill where the, the banking is at the canal. And you see him run up to the, the banking at one point to chuck a, the murder weapon into the canal. It's all very nice and pretty now. Then it's horrendous. And there's lots of lovely glamour shots of Firhill and the streets around Maryhill Road and Firhill Road and everything. It's it's wonderful to see, kind of a nostalgia point of view, looking at that. But they use, they don't like redress the pub as a different name. They just straight up use one of the most famous pubs in Glasgow as itself mm. in the story, which is really weird. It's kind of like, it would be a comment of like using the pot still and actually just setting it in the pot still, you know, rather than renaming it as something else. What what was also odd to me was, I mean, how they bring those stories together is that's the local that, well, actually, was it the local that they were, it wasn't the local they, they went to in Killer. This is what we talked about in Killer, where he, the, the pub they use in Killer is the bottom of Partick Cross. Uh-huh. And this was my point, was like, how does Jim get to that from work? Because work would be the other end of Maryhill Road. Is it, in real life, they use Partick Police Station to film that, so it would have been the local for Partick. But the stories are set in Mary Hill, so the Firhill Tavern actually would be the right pub for them as the the pub for the for the, the police station. So it makes sense, but it is a completely different pub to the one in, in Killer. What's quite nice about have, having the two of them hanging about that pub, though, is I mean it's quite uneven in terms of are they getting along, or are they not getting along throughout it. But there was a couple of scenes in the pub where I mean I'm pretty sure Taggart buys him a drink at one point before before storming out on him. There's almost almost a bit of a, a thawing of their partnership during it. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely definitely after everything they've been through in the previous story as well, there's definitely a more of a mutual respect mm. going on between them. They're more of a, a partnership than they were uh in previous stories, which is great. Like, that makes sense. If you they're working together now They've thawed a bit, as you said. The, you know, Peter goes round to to Jim's house again. They play chess at one point, which is a really baffling image. So he's gonna... But then that that plays into the divide as well because Taggart wins at chess. I didn't. I I couldn't. I mean, nobody probably could believe that, but he does. He wins that game of chess. Uh, well, what I noticed as well in the background, I kept thinking they can't come back to this. We talked about uh, in Killer, Taggart seemed to have an, an enjoyment of playing arcade games, and in the background of the pub there was an arcade machine, and I thought, are they going to try and do that again? Nope. No no arcade. For He's moved on to chess from Pac-Man. He's uh, yes. slowly working up through the gears. Well, I was hoping, I was hoping that would continue. That major red herring doesn't really play into much of the main crime other than at the very end it crosses over with the dry cleaners which is barely a, a, a thread until basically the last episode you get these little scenes at the start that are set in the dry cleaners and as you said both there's a, a great line we're watching two different football matches sir they get their balls crossed and that's that's absolutely what's happened there's two separate murder plots happening simultaneously and they dovetail because the publican uses the same dry cleaner as the the murder the other murder plot, the posh murder plot, shall we say. And that's where they cross over. And that kind of investigating one ends up giving them the results for the other. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's had a, a very odd thing. But it fits in. It feels more like a traditional kind of Taggart structure. You have lots of murders. You have uh, one incredibly grisly one. In fact, actually two really grisly ones. Because you've got the body in the boat, which is an amazing bit of 
sort of design anyway. And then Martin Cochran's character, and you barely see it on screen. It's always kind of at the edge of screen or it's out of focus. But you and I have both got the same book with the photographs of the makeup effects they put on him, where his character is supposed to have been shot in the head with a shotgun. That is one of the best makeup effects I've seen for a very long for mid 80s British telly, especially. It is absolutely phenomenal. And also so grisly, I can understand why they keep it just at the edge of the frame. <laughs> because I can't imagine nine o'clock on a Monday, someone tuning in and seeing this close-up of someone's face properly mangled and charred and a hole in it. They would be sitting going, yeah, dear dear ITC, I'd like to raise a complaint about Scottish television. But you can guarantee people were talking about that the next day. That is something... Oh, that totally. It's a stunning bit of work. And kudos to the makeup team on that, because it looks so good. Well, according to the Taggart case book, to give it as due, uh, that was done with mince and chicken bones. And it just looks incredible. But that, that says a lot about the STV canteen, clearly, if that's the effect it has. <laughs> yeah, got to say, though, the actor who has to have that on his face, do you think, oh, just... And then stay completely good. still as well yeah. for how long or how many takes. Um, in what is, again, just curious the set design, what is the most 80s living room you will ever see? <laughs> Expensive 80s. It, it is literally out of an MFI catalogue. Mm. It's lots of black leather and chrome. Um, and it is as, as, as kind of new money furniture as you would get in the 1980s. But unusually for a set, though, you see both sides. So you see one side, the wall where uh, mm. the apparent suicide is taken. And then you see from the, the the back of that as well, you see the other side of the room. And I, I don't remember... I mean, the set is fantastic. Yeah, initially I thought they were on location, but it's on VT, so it must have been mm. the studio. It's it's, But it is, as you say, you see the wall because Peter goes off to not be well <laughs> when he sees it. And yeah, they, they go off and you see it. Whether they've, they built or they did a reverse for it, I don't know, but... It's, it's it, it looks like they've built a 360 set for it, which is, a, you know, again, something you didn't do with drama at that point. It, it worked so and, well. And, and the fire in the boat is, I mean, that is a great stunt. I mean, yeah. I presume they used an old boat. I, I'm going to guess they didn't have the budget to, to just burn boats uh, at, at will. But when they then afterwards, the, the actors have to climb in. Uh, we see Taggart putting his, his welly boots on. I mean, that is that's a tremendous moment. And really sells really sells how grisly the the scene is oh yeah they're they are not pulling any punches in this story the the body count is high and it is visceral mm. which is really what and even like when dorothy paul's character is murdered it's a very horrible bludgeoning she gets in the pub and mm. it's it's they do not muck about with it so um, despite all that the thing that grossed me out most about this is where taggart is actually trying to figure out could could he have could he have actually shot himself? And he puts the gun in his mouth, and I thought, oh my <laughs> god, oh that is horrific. Like I said, this is genuinely one of my favorites because I think the plot of it um, pays off. As you said, it, it kind of the way it's revealed at the end with the kind of the, the they don't really layer it too heavily with the the dry cleaners until the kind of big reveal that Ken Stott spoilers Ken Stott's the the killer. Yeah, it comes out of nowhere, but you end up with an amazing dash to the creme where they think someone's going to be uh, cremated and it's, you know, that will be the evidence going up in smoke. Um, and Ken Stott's character is the doctor who he has been like administering drugs and poison and people and, and stuff. 
It's so, so well done. Um, with a lovely low-speed car chase into a hearse as well, which is great. And actually, the thing that struck me with that whole bit, these three episodes, Peter Livingston gets the absolute daylights kicked out of him. He gets beaten up, he gets a dog set on him, he gets almost run over. <laughs> He's in a low-speed car crash. <laughs> they really put Alistair Duncan through the mill in this one. I mean, that dog is definitely biting his arm. I mean, obviously it'll be padded or something, but it is vicious. Yeah, yeah. He earned his, he earned his money for this episode. I, 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 want, I, I worry for the cameraman as well. I mean, there was a lot of glass. That was not a set. That did not look a safe place. Uh, I've got to. I've got to wonder as well. Seriously, so he, he um, Livingston turns up at the at the crematorium and then basically breaks a car window just to get access to the to the doctor's briefcase. I'm pretty sure there's going to be some legal issue with that. Surely, well, surely if nothing else, security would have spotted some random bloke putting his fist through the window of a doctor's <laughs> car and taking all the drugs out and shaking it on the roof and then standing. Yeah, yeah. Where's all the uniforms suddenly getting called by by the undertakers going? Someone's breaking in, nicking up some junkies out here. It's, 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 it happens all the time. Well, I, I, I didn't. I, I. That's where I. That the main part of this where they actually try to give us, uh, here's the solution. That is where I completely lost the thread because, I mean, Ken Stott's in it here and there, and they obviously keep him out of it, so he's not front of mind. But then, I don't. I don't really understand how it all happened. Then so. The dry cleaner and he are in league, but you don't. It doesn't really. I guess you're meant to f- just guess that they're probably in a relationship, and they figured out here's a here's something we can do because his father has told him this this family secret so, uh, of years old. I I didn't. The resolution wasn't clear. I think you can figure it out in the end once everything's happened, but I don't think it was clearly defined as to here is here is what was going on. I I I kind of got it. I think. But it is it is very much backloaded. You get to once Peter goes to the doctor's surgery, that's kind of where all the information comes. But that's seven minutes left. There is a kind of bit of of that. Peter figures out what's going on, and then it's like, oh shit, has to get to the crematorium. Is phoning up Doctor Andrews to sort of say, well, if you inject somebody with this, what would happen? And um, and gets it. And Jim's already figured it out by this point. Is is moved the body out of the crematorium, <laughs> which is a great sort of nice little joke but he's kind of poor Peter standing there watching this thing go up and smoke like they've blown it can you get that body out of there? you're joking it's like a raging inferno in there Peter in here hope you're not late for your own I thought he was in there they've got a bike lock yeah, so ta- so Tiger's just standing admiring a coffin. What what was he doing? Is that a thing? Like they'll just burn anybody if they, if they've got too many bodies. They tell you they're burning somebody, but it's actually the one is in front of you in the queue. Sorry to go into this grisly detail, but my understanding is even when you get the ashes, there's a good chance that you've got other other people in there as well. You're not just going to get that. I, I this is my understanding of how it works. <laughs> right. So how many murders were there in the end? So my reckoning is there's four. In this, right. so you've got um, Dorothy Paul, uh, Andrew Keir, Martin Cochran, and uh, the, the the the, the lassie is that plays his girlfriend at the start, who doesn't. And, I don't think she's got any dialogue. She's 
I think she might say something, but I, I remember the first time I watched this, I didn't even, it took me ages to realise that's who had been killed. Mm-hmm. And I had to go back to watch again because she was so barely there before yeah. it all happened. She, she, she's basically a MacGuffin for the rest of the story. She's, she's there to, mm-hmm. to, to be a catalyst for the plot. McVitie comes into it um, mm-hmm. for the first time, who's very much golf club in Masons. But also him, him and Jim are kind of dazzled by the celebrity of mm-hmm. the opera singer, um, Isla Blair's sort of beautiful character, who Jim first encounters at the... The concert. Library, the concert, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mitchell and the theatre. They have this kind of thing going on where... And I, I couldn't quite get where Peter thinks, oh, she's been dazzled, dazzled by her beauty. And it's like, there's definitely a kind of respect there, but I never got there was a kind of flirty, full-on he fancies her type thing. I thought it was just kind of, you know... I think they want you to get there, but I don't... I agree. I don't I, think it's there I, in the... I think it might be there in the script, but I don't think it's there in the performance. No. What was interesting to me was it starts off with Vitti saying, take it easy on her, basically. But in the end, he's the one that wants to arrest her. Mm. And it's Taggart that's a bit, mm, not sure about this yet. So they kind of flip between the two of them. I find that really interesting fact about Ian Anders as well. I didn't realise he was only a part-time actor and he was actually a legal clerk and he would work with uh, clients coming in who would be confused by the fact that they were being consulted by the biscuit. I didn't know that. that. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's... uh, I I will credit that source to 25 years of Taggart. I just thought... When I looked at his career, I thought, surely he's done lots and lots. No, part-time actor. I love the idea that he's just kind of looked at and gone, well, this this acting lark, it might not work out, so I'll get a proper trade, even though I'm in one of the biggest TV shows in Britain. Oh, a lovely touch during the show. Um, Semper Vigilo. I love that. I, mm. I, I don't remember that being... Uh, Strathclyde Police's motto, but always watching. I think that's that's a brilliant touch when they talk about that. The one, the other one that, let, that completely confused me in this is a couple of scenes where, for some reason, there are a zoo. Yes, and it's like, what? Where? I mean, I presume it's meant to be Glasgow Zoo, and they've not like gone out to Blair Drummond or something. But like, why? No, it must be Glasgow <laughs> Zoo. They can't, where else could they have got an elephant? But. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I presume that's just there because it's oh, visually quite interesting to have in the middle of Glasgow. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely backdrop, but it's like, why? <laughs> well, even I mean, they have that conversation. Why are we meeting in a zoo? But I don't think there's a response to it. <laughs> we've we've got we've got two hours to shoot. We've got permission. Let's do it. That's probably what happened. <laughs> I don't remember. And you know what? I'll be disappointed if we don't end up back in that zoo. Those animals, somebody has to die by a zoo animal, surely. So did you enjoy this episode, Stephen? I mostly did. I found it frustrating in terms of, again, could I have figured it out? Probably not. But again, I went with it. I enjoyed the performances. I think the actors is such a tremendous cast. And just knowing where it's all going to go as well, I'm watching it and smiling and going, yes, this is Taggart. Um, I think, yeah. But once again, I think Glenn's writing, I mean, knowing that he wasn't a highly experienced screenwriter, but producing some of the dialogue comes away with, I, it's it's almost extraordinary to learn that in retrospect. I, I just really enjoy the writing of Taggart more than anything else right now. It's But also the grizzliness as well. I, I love a slasher film and I think Taggart is right up there with some of the best. So uh, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to enjoy here, but uh, I don't, I unlike you, I don't think this is one of the best. Fair enough. It's genuinely one of my favourites. I think it's it's an amazing cast. I think the writing is, is lovely and twisty and the two plots when they do dovetail it becomes a really interesting crossover i like the idea that they are two they accidentally 
solve two murders. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like with no and I, we've solved a murder by mistake. Um, <laughs> they kind of just, these two things are, are completely independent. And, and like, that it's happening as well at the pub under Jim and Peter's nose makes that such mm. a fun plot as well. But the payoff for it is, is really clever. I think it works. I, I think everything about it really shines. I think the dialogue absolutely sparkles. Um, the stuff between the the would-be killer um, that's hired and his mum talking about, um, you know, these Irish mum but going, you know, going on holiday and stuff like that. It's real kind of that nice contrast, like we said, with Killer, where you've got the two classes again in Glasgow and it's it's that kind of, you've got all the stuff with the, the, the wealthy public school types and then you've got this real kind of, you know, scraping by slice of life bit as well of Glasgow. And it, it works, it's, it captures again that spirit of the city so well. It does. It's fantastic how it really does understand Glasgow culture. And I mean, Glenn was explaining that to us. He didn't know Glasgow particularly well, but he does such a good job of writing. Yeah. Uh, the, the the people of Glasgow is tremendous. What do we make of it overall? Then, what series one? We've we've watched the two stories. Where do you think it is in terms of? having an inkling of where it's going, do you think th- this is absolutely Taggart or do you think there's there's still things that need to be developed along the way? It, it's definitely, I think, found its feet. I think by the end of Murdering Season, the show that we recognise as Taggart is there. Mm. All the elements are there. I mean, most of the elements are there from Killer, but it's really found the package at this point in terms of the tone, in terms of the style. The only thing that changes now is they lose the studio stuff and everything goes on mm. uh, on um, film, on location. That's kind of the only difference we get now between seasons. And it's better for it. Yes, absolutely. It gives it a more filmic look. Yeah. When I when I think back on the show, a lot of the joy of watching it was, oh, look, there, that that's that place, and oh, the film this there, and oh, I was there a few weeks ago, and remember talking about just seeing your home city on the television was incredible, and I think they probably realise we need to get more of that in there because that's what I think everyone talked about that more than anything else. Yeah, totally. It's, it, it's a great advert for the the whole package of, of Glasgow at this point. But I think also, as we said, the writing is, is so vivid and mm. it's, it's not like anything else on TV at this point. And I think it's very you can start to see the influence it has on other things as we go along. But at this point, it's such a distinctive voice in terms of what it's trying to do the kind of stories it's trying to tell and just the look and feel of it in terms of it's like I said, it's not afraid to 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 go all in. It's not pulling any punches in terms of kind of the the grisliness of the murders and the the kind of the the the, the expectation that the the viewer is actually got a bit of intelligence and has been taken along for the ride mm. rather than mm. Everything is spoon fed to them. I, you know, I think it, it occasionally might trip itself up a little bit with with Dead Ringer. It's, it's maybe just slightly too complicated for its own good. But I think it, it's, it's that there's also a level of trust there that it's saying to the viewers, "This isn't just going to be a straightforward. Here's X, X killed Y. Now you see how it's solved, like Columbo. It's actually a, you know you really have to invest in this to to get it. So the title of Dead Ringer is definitely a spoiler. Because yes, you, what is the name of that? Until you you get to quite the to the end, then you realise, all oh, right, okay, that's where we're going. Murder in season. Now they talk about it's in season to go hunting, and we see Chekhov's shotgun a few times. Why is it called murder in season, though? Really, I don't know. It may be a phrase I that's before kind of my radar. I don't know, but it's it, as you said. I mean, it, it works. I think in terms of 
is, is it supposed to be the musical season? I don't know. It, it, but it, it, it's a nice, evocative title. So we will be back in a month's time with the second series of Taggart from 1986. That's Knife Edge and Death Call. Some more familiar faces, including Alex Norton and Alan Cumming. If you've got any thoughts on those episodes, or indeed on uh, Murder in Season and Dead Ringer, do please get in touch. You can get us on Twitter at NoMeanCityPod or by email at NoMeanCityPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you for listening. 